One of the great things about the book of Acts is that it helps us get back to basics. The early church was certainly not perfect. We're going to see that very soon when we get to chapter 5. And as we've noticed before, we're not meant to recreate everything we find in the book of Acts. For example, what happened at Pentecost isn't going to happen again. But even when we take those things into consideration, this book still shows us what things have to be the main things for the church. Acts helps us get back to basics. And that is especially true for the passage we're going to look at this morning. This morning we're going to see a picture of God's new community. It's a new community that came into being on the day of Pentecost. Now, it's true there was a group of believers before Pentecost. But it was only at Pentecost that those believers were filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. So after Pentecost, we really can speak about a new community. The church had its roots in the Old Testament but it came alive at Pentecost. And our passage is going to show us that God's new community is noticeable for two things. It's life together and it's witness. If you haven't already turned to Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in chapter 2 verse 42. In the church Bible, that's page 1094. And we're going to follow this through to the end of chapter 3. But first of all, let me just read chapter 2, verses 42 down to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Here we have a picture of the church's life together, and it's a life characterized by loving God and loving each other. When outsiders looked at the community life of these believers, that's the double focus they saw. And these verses give us some specifics about the church's life together. It tells us what they did. It tells us how their love for God and each other showed itself. The first thing we're told is that learning was a big part of their life together. Verse 42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Back in chapter 1, the word that's translated devoted here was translated as constant. We're being told that they were persistent in this. They were into it in a big way, and they stayed into it. And what they were into was the apostles' teaching. 
These first believers heard it direct from the apostles. Today, we find the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. And as we saw last week, and as we'll see later this morning, the Old Testament was a big part of the apostles' teaching. The Old Testament didn't get ditched after Pentecost. It was still seen as God's Word. It was still seen as having relevance for the life of God's church. The New Testament is constantly quoting or referring to the Old Testament. So today, we follow the example of the early church by devoting ourselves to the teaching of the Bible. The church must never get so taken up with other things that it stops being devoted to learning from the Bible. I don't want to make too much of the order in which things are mentioned here. But surely it is significant that this is mentioned first. The church doesn't know how to be the church unless it listens to God's word. And the church isn't going to grow in obedience and maturity unless it's constantly listening to God's word. God's word is not something that we master and then move on from. It's a book that must constantly be mastering us. And that process takes a lifetime. Certainly the church is not a college. Sunday services are not supposed to be academic lectures. But the fact remains, learning must have a central place in the church's life together. Now, I know it's not just learning the details of Scripture. It's learning how Scripture applies to us. But we can't apply the details unless we know the details. The church that isn't focused on learning from God's Word will be an immature, insubstantial church. And immature, insubstantial churches tend to be bickering, ineffective churches. They tend to be churches with no clear idea of what their purpose is. They may seem to have lots of enthusiasm for God, but they're not listening to God. Remember, God's Holy Spirit lives among God's people. And one writer points out that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. When the Holy Spirit is active and when the church is being the church it's supposed to be, God's Word will always have a central place in its life together. The church that loves God will love His Word and devote themselves to His Word. A second aspect of the church's life together is sharing. And this is said in several different ways. Verse 42 says they were devoted to the fellowship. Fellowship is an important word in the New Testament. It means working together with the same vision or goal. Before they ever met Jesus, we're told that Peter, James, and John had fellowship together in their fishing business. That's the word that's used. They worked together, in other words, to make the business thrive. But now, Peter, James, and John, and all the other believers 
have fellowship in the life of the church. They work together now to make the church thrive. Each member of the church takes responsibility. No one opts out and leaves it for the others. We could say everyone buys into the church. Everyone invests themselves in the church. And we're given some ways here that that investment can be seen. Verse 42 says they were devoted to the breaking of bread. That's repeated in verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together. What does it mean to break bread together? It means eating together. Now, it's true that for these believers, eating together included sharing the Lord's Supper together. They ate their meal and then they moved on to the Lord's Supper. And church life will always include that special time to remember the Lord's death. But by itself, the phrase, the breaking of bread, doesn't mean the Lord's Supper. It just means sharing a meal. And sharing a meal is one way of investing in relationships. I suppose maybe it's possible to sit around a table and eat in silence. But it's hard to do that. Eating together encourages us to talk. And no doubt, as well as talking about their kids and their jobs and their football teams, these believers talked about the apostles' teaching. They helped each other understand it and remember it and apply it and put it into practice. They shared food together, and as they did, they were really sharing their lives. And if we think about the practicalities of this, we know that at this point there were more than 3,000 believers in Jerusalem. Maybe it's possible they sometimes ate all together. But verse 46 tells us the pattern was eating together in their homes. So we're talking here about groups of fives and sixes and sevens. And the point here is that when the church is being what it's supposed to be, its members will be eating together. So it's worth asking ourselves, when was the last time I ate with someone from church? Or does church for you just consist of coming along to services? Is that the main contact you have with other church members? Looking at the back of their heads on Sunday mornings. It's worth looking closely at this picture of the church and then inviting someone around for a meal. Or if you can't cook, then invite yourself to someone else's house. These believers shared the same vision. They shared their lives together. And we're told they shared their stuff together. Verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. It's important to notice this was not a one-time, all-at-once selling of their possessions. It happened as needs arose. Verse 46 proves that at least some of the believers continued to own their own homes. But where there was a need among the believers, the others shared what they had to alleviate the need. 
And if that made it necessary to sell something in order to raise funds, then they did it. And this is at least part of what Paul had in mind when he called the church to carry each other's burdens. When the church is genuinely alive and thriving, it isn't going to be a place where individual members are left to sink or swim by themselves. Members will know each other well enough to know each other's needs. And the church body will be willing to share in order to meet those needs. The church's life together is full of learning, sharing, and in verse 42, praying. I spent a fair bit of time on this a couple of weeks ago. But it's worth repeating that the arrival of the Holy Spirit did not decrease the church's devotion to prayer. They were devoted to it in chapter 1 before the Spirit came. And verse 42 shows they are equally devoted to it here, after the Spirit has come. So the question is, can we afford to be any different? I think that we are different, but can we afford to be? Are we so much stronger and wiser than the early church that we can treat prayer like an optional extra? Something for those who are that way inclined. If we want to be more than a social club, then our life together must be marked by prayer. So I repeat the challenge from two weeks ago. Every year, there are 12 main prayer meetings here in the church. One every month. So let's prioritize that first Thursday of every month. And let's come together as a body and show our dependence on God. These verses also show us a church praising together. Unfortunately, the word praise is often used to mean nothing more than singing songs in church. And it does include that, but it's mentioned here in the context of day-to-day activity. After verse 46 mentions the believers eating in homes together, we're told they did so with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. So there's actually no mention of singing here. Praise begins as an attitude of the heart. And that attitude then works its way out in the whole of our lives. It's very possible to sing lots of praise songs, but not actually be praising at all. I'm sure all of us know that from our own experience. True praise begins with a heart that's thankful to God and that loves God. And then, once our hearts are like that, the singing will take care of itself. We'll stop worrying whether the tune is too old for us or too modern for us. We'll just be glad for the chance to open our lungs and sing God's praises. Well, that's what the early church did. Those are the ways they showed love for God and love for each other. But that's not all we're told in these verses. 
We're also told the church's community life made it attractive. Verse 47 says the believers enjoyed the favor of all the people. It's always a temptation for the church to neglect its life together in order to focus on those who are outside the church. But the lesson here is that a church committed to life together is very attractive to those outside. Think how many lonely people there are. Men and women whose only company is the TV or a bottle. After a few years of living in a loving church body, we can forget what life is like without it. I know plenty of people belong to clubs and societies. But does anyone notice or really care if they don't show up at those clubs and societies? And what about those awkward people who just don't seem to fit in anywhere else? Where are they going to find a welcome and a home apart from the church? And how will those people know they'll be welcome in the church? They know it by observing the way we treat each other. This community in Jerusalem was attractive. And it was a place where God was at work. It was alive and there were signs of life. Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Then look down to the second half of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit will not always show his presence in ways that are outwardly spectacular. But when the church is alive, there will be wonders of one form or another. It may be the wonder of changed lives, for example, or healed relationships. And there will be some evidence of what we read in verse 47. Men and women being saved from the guilt and penalty of their sin and added to the fellowship. Now, in some times and places, that will involve remarkable numbers of people, like in Jerusalem here. But in other times and places, it will be ones and twos. But the ones and twos are no less remarkable, they're no less miraculous. And they're no less a work of God's Holy Spirit. You and I cannot command the Holy Spirit. But we can commit to being the kind of community that is ready and ripe for the Spirit to work. We do that as we take on the same priorities that we see here in the earliest church. Now, I hope at this point you have a question in your minds. And maybe the question is, how on earth is he going to finish this passage by 12 o'clock? But the question I hope you have is this. So far, there's been no mention of the church witnessing. But isn't that what Jesus called the church to do? Isn't that the mission that he gave the church? Yes, it is. And having given us a picture of the new community's life together, 
Luke goes on to give us a picture of its witness, pointing others to Jesus. This church was committed to life together, but they were not so inwardly focused that they forgot their mission. They were not isolated from the corrupt generation around them. And chapter 3 shows us how they went about witnessing to those around them. There are two aspects to it. First of all, verses 1 to 8 of chapter 3 show us the believers doing good in Jesus' name. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have. But what I have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Peter and John did not go looking for this man. As they were going about their day, they were confronted with someone who needed help. And they responded to his need. They didn't treat him as an inconvenience to be avoided. And that's a good approach for us to take. We can't help everybody. But God will bring us into contact with people or situations where help is needed. None of us can do everything. But we can all do good in Jesus' name. And maybe your response is, okay, but I can't heal cripples. Maybe not. But the point is, Peter and John gave what they had to give. In their case, they didn't have any money to give. But somehow, Peter knew that God was giving him the power to heal the man. So Peter did the good that God enabled him to do. You and I may never be given the power to heal. But God will give us the resources to help in some way. It may be time. It may be money. Or some area of expertise that we have. It may be the space to give someone a home with us for a while. And it's important to notice, as Peter did good, he pointed to the true source of the man's help. In verse 6, Peter did what he did in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Peter wants the man to know who has enabled Peter to help him. The hand that raised the man up was Peter's, but the power came from Jesus. It's great to be people who do good. But let's make sure we explain where the good is coming from. Otherwise, we're just building our own reputation. Let's give Jesus the credit and build his reputation. 
When we looked at chapter 1, we said that strictly speaking, doing good is not witnessing. Witnessing involves telling the truth about Jesus. Doing good is important. It can prepare the way for our witnessing. It can support our witnessing. But it must must never be a substitute for witness. Sooner or later, as we do good, we have to get to the truth about Jesus. And that's what we find here. What Peter has done earns him an opportunity to witness to a large crowd of people. Verse 9. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, Men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you look at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses to this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. If you were here last week, you will notice that what Peter says here is very similar to what he said in chapter 2. And that shouldn't surprise us. The church has one message about Jesus. And whether that's being given in Jerusalem or New York or Pelsall, the good news about Jesus is going to have the same basic points. Peter begins by stressing it wasn't his power that healed the man. In verse 12, why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? Then in verse 13, Peter says the healing is evidence that God, the God the Jews claim to worship, has glorified his servant Jesus. Jesus is risen and reigning as Lord. And this crowd stands guilty before the risen Lord. Peter says Jesus is the holy and righteous one. But, verse 13, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him. Verse 14, you chose to have a murderer released to you. That was Barabbas. And verse 15, you killed the author of life. Jesus is Lord. The crowd is guilty before him. What are they going to do? Verse 17, now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God, 
so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In verse 17, Peter says, I know that you acted in ignorance. In other words, maybe you didn't know the truth about Jesus, but now you do because I am telling you. So then, verse 19, repent, turn to God. And the result will be your sins will be wiped out. Meaning they'll be forgiven and forgotten by God. They'll be wiped out like the writing on a whiteboard. Your guilt will be gone. And Peter says, times of refreshing will come from the Lord. What does that mean? I think Peter is talking about the peace, the inner rest that comes from being forgiven. I would guess that all of us know the feeling of being distanced from another person because of something we've done. Maybe you can think of a time when you've said something hurtful to someone you love or about someone you love. Or you've betrayed their trust in some way. It's a miserable feeling. But then to have that person come to you and say, I forgive you. I accept you. That kind of forgiveness brings with it a great sense of relief. And then imagine how that works in our relationship with God. Now, it's true that many people have no sense of being distanced from God. They don't realize that they're cut off from Him. But when we truly become aware of our guilt before God, when the Holy Spirit works in us to show us our guilt, and when we realize we could never earn our way back to be reconciled to Him, when we realize that, it becomes impossible for us to have any real rest or peace. But the message here is, turn to Jesus. Trust in His payment for your sin. And along with the fact of being forgiven you'll have the refreshing awareness that you're reconciled to God. The barrier and the distance are gone. In Christ, you've been accepted and brought near. Turning from our sin to Christ leads to forgiveness and refreshment, and it makes us ready for Christ's return ready to take our place in the new heaven and earth. Look at verse 20. And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything. Remember what gave Peter the opportunity to say all of this. Through the power of Jesus, he was able to give a crippled man basically a new life. A life where he could not only dance about, but work and thrive as a person. And now Peter has taken the opportunity to offer the whole crowd new life in Christ. He's not offering just an improved life for a few years. He's offering new life that lasts forever. So this is the pattern for the church's witness. 
doing good in Jesus' name, and alongside that, telling the truth about Jesus. And remember that Peter is speaking to a crowd who know the Old Testament. And so he ends here by explaining that the good news he's giving them isn't something out of the blue. It's the fulfillment of God's ancient promises. At the end of verse 21, he says, All of this is as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Everyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you were heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. So Jesus is the prophet promised long ago through Moses. Only those who listen to Jesus will receive a place among God's people. And Jesus is the prophet, is the promised descendant of Abraham, the one who will bring blessing to all peoples on earth. As the book of Acts unfolds, that promise will find greater and greater fulfillment. As the disciples travel across the world, they take the truth about Jesus with them. People from all nations receive the blessings Peter is talking about. They receive forgiveness of sins. They receive the refreshment of knowing they're reconciled with their Creator. And they receive the assurance of an eternal home when Jesus returns. Those blessings are for the whole world. But Peter brings the challenge to this crowd on this day, in this place. Verse 26, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. The truth about Jesus is for the whole world. But every time that truth is shared, it comes to specific people in a specific place. And today it comes to you. And you must respond. Turn from your rebellion against God. Turn to Jesus. And the blessings that Jesus brings will be yours. And for those of us here who have responded to Jesus, that makes each of us part of the church. It was never God's intention to have isolated, stand-alone Christians. There were none in the New Testament. There shouldn't be any today. God calls all Christians to enter into life together, loving God and loving each other, as we learn and share and pray and praise together. And then, as we're built up, as we grow in maturity through our life together, 
we'll also go and do good in Jesus' name. And we'll tell the truth about Jesus. We're going to recommit ourselves to those things as we sing, Church of God, Elect and Glorious. <laughs> 